Good morning. It is wonderful to see you today behind those masks that you have on. It's just, uh, it's great to see your eyes. Some people smile better with their eyes than others. Some people you can't tell, and some people you know their cheeks are just literally, they're just tight with a smile because of their eyes. Um, my youngest, Isaac, he is one of those. You can tell just by his eyes that he's smiling. It's always good to see that. Well, today we're going to continue our series on the storm, and we're going to talk about a whale of a storm. And as we, as I share this message, I'm, I'm reminded that the first time I'm sure that I heard this story, I was just a child in Sunday school. And we have taught that story of Jonah and the whale. And it is a great story to use because what five-year-old doesn't want to hear about a whale eating someone? You know, and so as we look at this story, we have to remember that as children, the whale was the big attraction in the story. But today, we're going to look at the storm that took place uh, in Jonah's life and how God used that storm. So I'd like us this morning to begin, and, and I'm going to read a fairly lengthy portion of scripture. Forgive me for doing that, but from the book of Jonah, <clears throat> chapter 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break apart. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, "'How can you sleep?' Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to, th to row back to shore but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. 
Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. What I'd like us to do today is look at this story and recognize three things that if we can grab a hold of these things, they are going to help us in some of the times of storm that we may be experiencing in our lives. And the first thing I'd like us to look at is the fact that Jonah felt justified. Jonah felt justified. It's very clear that Jonah refused to obey, to obey God. And there was no question. He was the prophet of the Lord. He was used to, to God speaking to him. He was used to God giving him directives. And God said, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach against the city because their wickedness is so great. And Jonah didn't argue with God. He just flat out refused to obey God. The truth is that Jonah hated the Assyrians. And in particular, he hated the Ninevites. And we don't read about the source of that hatred in Scripture, but biblical scholars tell us that there was a reason why Jonah hated the Ninevites. Jonah was not the first prophet that was more than likely called to go preach the word of the Lord in Nineveh. And those prophets that had gone and, and given the word of the Lord, what happened is that the people in Nineveh didn't like the word of the Lord. And so they decided that rather than have to sit and listen to this prophet declare the word of the Lord, they would take matters into their own hand and they killed those prophets. Scholars tell us that what they would do with the heads of those prophets is after they were decapitated, they would take their head and put it on a pike, and those pikes lined the road that went into the city of Nineveh, sending a message to any future or would-be prophets that the word of the Lord is not welcome in this place. And Jonah knew that as bad as Nineveh was, that if he went there and he preached the, the word of the Lord and he warned them of God's impending judgment, if they repented, he knew that God would ultimately forgive them. And he hated them so much that he did not want this to happen. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now this is after the fact that that, that we've now had the, the storm, we've had the great fish, we have had uh, the, the preaching in Nineveh, and now the people of Nineveh have responded to that preaching in the way that Jonah did not want them to. They've repented. Look at what he says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah felt completely justified in his disobedience because he hated these people. He did not want them to repent. He was trying to avoid any opportunity that they would have to be able to repent, and that's why he went in the opposite direction. He was running from God because he wanted what he wanted. He wanted the situation to turn out the way that he wanted to, so he literally took matters into his own hands. Look at what James, the brother of Jesus, says in James chapter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> he said, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Sometimes this is us. Sometimes we know what God desires us to do, but we know that if we do that, it's possibly going to turn out results that are different than the results that you and I want to turn out. And so we make a very calculated, a very determined decision that we're not going to do what God wants us to do. We're going to go in the other direction. We want what we want. And we want the situation to turn out that way. And here's what we say. But God you don't know what life has been like for me. God, you don't know the abuse that I have suffered at the hands of those who are supposed to love me and take care of me. God, you don't know how much I've suffered. You don't know what my family has done to me. You don't know what life has ultimately been like for me. And I want you to know that God is not unaware of every detail of your life. He knows everything that's ever happened to us. Look at Psalm chapter 56 and verse eight. He says, record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? I want you to know that God does not dismiss the pain in your life from your past. In fact, what the Hebrew is really saying here is that God collects your tears the, the, way, um, the, the way you would by collecting water in a wineskin. God literally holds on to them and keeps them as a reminder, as if he would need to do that because he's all-knowing, but yet that's what it means to him. That's how much he's moved by our pain. That's how much the, the pain of our past sticks with God, that he has literally collected our tears and contains them and holds on to them. God knows what life has been like. He knows, but yet the past and the pain of the past and then the future, what might be, and the pain that might be, that cannot justify our sin against God. It doesn't justify our disobedience and just the, the, the sense of justification led Jonah into the storm. 
It was him feeling justified because he hated the Ninevites, because he did not want them to repent. That caused him to feel justified to the point where he said, God, this is exactly what I was trying to avoid. Don't you understand? He felt justified in his disobedience. And the storm was a way for God to get his attention. Did you know that God brings storms into our lives as a way to get our attention? When we decide to go a different way than he instructs us to, he sends storms to put us back on track. Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. In other words, before the storm came into my life, I went astray. And then he says, but now I obey your word. Now, I, after the storm has come into my life, and after it has brought the correction of God into my life, now I obey your word. God uses affliction. God uses trouble and tribulation in times of storm in our lives to get us to change direction. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. God desires to bring us back to a place. In fact, I would dare say that that God is pursuing us and he uses this storm in Jonah's life to pursue Jonah, to put him back and restore him to the right path. Over the past couple weeks, I've noticed a meme that I've seen a couple of times and I, I had to watch it and really look at it closely because at first... It was kind of disconcerting because this this guy is is kind of straddling a, 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 a ditch, but it's a real steep, dark ditch, and he's got the leg of an animal, and he is reefing on this leg, okay? Reefing on this leg, and, and all of a sudden, I mean, and he is pulling, and, and he pulls a sheep out of this ditch. Have you seen this meme? And this, this sheep bounds away, scared to death, and two jumps, three jumps later, that sheep jumps right back in the same ditch that he was just rescued out of. And it is a spectacular uh, video. That's you and I. God is doing everything that he can to rescue us, and how many times do we literally turn right back around and jump into the very same ditch? Jonah felt justified. He felt justified in in disobeying God. And you know what? It doesn't matter how, how scared you are. It doesn't matter what life has been, how painful life has been, or how, how you might look at the future and say, it is so uncertain, God. There's no way that I can obey you. There's no way that I can follow you. We dare not justify our disobedience. Next God sent the storm. Of all the storms that we've, we've been looking at, I don't know that any of them we can say for certain that God actually sent those storms. I want to tell you about a storm <clears throat> that took place uh, here in the U.S. It was January 28th, 1977. And it was a storm that took place uh, across the Great Lakes, actually on the eastern end of the Great Lakes. And when we lived out in Pennsylvania, 
we saw this phenomenon take place. Now, we know what lake effect snow is here in, in Marquette, of course, because of Lake Superior. <clears throat> and normally, Lake Erie freezes at some point during the year. It's a much shallower lake uh, than Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, and, and it will freeze, and that shuts down what they call out there, they call it the snow machine. It shuts the snow machine down. And so, um, but in this particular year, in 1977, the end of January, the lake was not yet frozen, and a storm came, and it came across the Great Lakes, and, and literally, I've, having lived out there, you will watch these storms come across the, uh, Lake Erie, and you're just praying, Lord, don't let that storm sag, because if that storm sags, you, in Erie, we're going to get hit, <clears throat> And so it was just this idea of, Lord, just let it keep going. Let Buffalo get all the blessings of the Lord here. And what happened was, on January 28th, Buffalo got hit. And it, it, they got hit so bad, it makes you wonder, you know, how bad Buffalo has sinned. You know what I'm saying? Um, I say that jokingly, but this storm, one, it, that one factor, 69 mile an hour winds. 69, 71 or 74 is hurricane force. This was 69 mile an hour winds, 100 inches of snow. I mean, if you lived in Calumet, I don't know if you could claim that you've ever gotten that much snow in one storm. 100 inches of snow, 40 foot high drifts. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. 29 people died in that storm. Let me ask you a question. Does God control the weather? Does God control the weather? Now, we, we would be wrong if we would say God can't control the weather. Because God created the weather. But to say God can't, we, that, would be, that would be wrong. It would also be wrong of us to say that, that God never controls the weather. Because as we read in some scriptures, God does in fact control the weather. But the weather, just like the world that we live in, is under the curse of sin. Just like you're under the curse of sin, I'm under the curse of sin. I'll bet you some of you here, you can't wait for it to get warm so you can plant uh, a garden in your yard. Did you know that your garden is under the curse of sin? Every weed that grows up in your garden is a result of the curse of sin that is on the earth. When you spend time in the hot sun working in that garden and you begin to sweat and you get tired, that is evidence of the curse. Ladies, when you give birth to a child and you experience the pain of childbirth, that is evidence of the curse that is on our world. And our weather is also under that same curse. God can and sometimes does control the weather and Jonah found himself in a situation where he went to Joppa and he finds a ship going in the opposite direction he's supposed to go and he buys a ticket and he gets on board. Look at Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened 
to break up. Now, Joppa is modern-day Tel Aviv in Israel, and it's the oldest port city in all of Israel. It's on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and the Mediterranean is a a long east-to-west body of salt water. That's why it's called a sea. The prevailing wind is, of course, from the northwest. And so that when, when storms come up, and they're called hurricanes, um, I mentioned it last week, it, Mediterranean hurricanes are called medicanes. They produce waves as high as 40 feet tall. That's a huge wave. That's an enormous storm. And I'm going to presume that, that, that they didn't leave the port in, um, in, in Joppa. They didn't leave during a hurricane. They waited until they got some sort of favorable weather. And that ship was sailing from the east side of the Mediterranean to the west side of the Mediterranean. And it says that the Lord sent a great wind, a violent storm. The Hebrew indicates that it's a hurricane-strength storm, and it also indicates that God literally cast forth the storm. What does that mean? When I think of that, I think of growing up in the Taylor household. My dad said, if you're a boy growing up in my home, there's two things that you're going to be able to do well. One is grip a golf club, and the other one is throw a ball. And we threw balls all the time. My mother's biggest complaint when I was growing up as a kid is, will you guys stop throwing balls in the house? She would turn and walk away, and immediately the ball would come across the room. And my dad usually was the one throwing it. We, we just, we, we played ball. Every, every, everything we did was with a ball. And I've, I still, Think of God as literally taking that storm and packing it together like you and I would put together a a good snowball and get it nice and round and just right for the size of our hand. And he chucks that, that storm down and hits that ship on the Mediterranean Sea. He cast it out. He threw it down at Jonah. Psalm 148 and verse 8 tells us that that God controls these elements. It says, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. When God desires to, he can bid that that, that the elements will work and do what he wants them to do. So when you and I take a wrong turn in our life, God can send very specifically a storm into our life that will cause us to wake up. It gets our attention. And that's exactly what happened in this situation. God used the storm not to punish Jonah. A lot of times we're in a storm and we say to ourselves, God's punishing me. I've done something wrong. God's not happy. He's punishing me. When what God is doing is saying, I want you to turn around and come back because you're going in the exact wrong direction. So I'm going to take myself a storm and throw it into your life to get your attention so that you will turn around and begin to go in the direction that God ultimately wants you to go.
Peter says it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3, the second half of verse 9. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God cares about every single person that they would all come to repentance. And so he is working to pursue you and to pursue me when we go astray, when we go the opposite direction that he desires us to go. He is literally trying to do everything he can to restore us. And number three, you can't run from God. In response to the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, he ran away. Nineveh was 725 miles inland to the northeast. And he decided very intentionally to go to Joppa and to get on that boat and go to, uh, to Tarshish. Do you know where Tarshish is? It's in Spain, 3,000 miles. It is at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. What he was saying was, I want to get as far away as fast as I can from God where you're telling me to go. That's what he was saying. He thought he could run from God. Uh, Bible scholars believe that Joppa was not the first port city that Jonah went to. He actually went to several port cities down the coast of the Mediterranean, and he literally would stop in there, and he believed that, that, that these cities were so evil that God's authority could not extend, God's reach could not extend into those cities. And so he went and stopped into those. And, and in my mind, I'm imagining a prisoner escaping from a maximum security prison, and he's on the run. And he hears the dogs off in the distance that are, that are following his scent. The, 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 the bloodhounds, you know what I'm talking about? And, and that prisoner is finding little streams that he can cross, He's finding little ponds that he can walk through. Why? So that those dogs cannot follow his scent and lead the authorities directly to him. He is running away from them, and that's exactly what Jonah was doing. He was trying to, to, to literally cause God to lose his scent by stopping in these cities before he left from Joppa to head to Tarshish. Well, I want you to know that God's power extends into all of those places. The King David really thought this through. And here's what King David says in Psalm 139, starting at verse 7. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, ultimately, God, that you're there. There's nowhere that I can go to escape your presence. David knew that. Jonah literally thought he could get away from God's presence. Some of us have said to ourselves, God, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. When I was a young pastor, I sat in the county jail to visit a man who had been accused of some really heinous stuff. And through that heavy glass with those telephones that were ancient, didn't work very well, he said, God could never forgive me of what I have done. 
And friends, I want you to know that no matter how far you've run from him, he can reach you. No matter what you have done, he pursues you. And no matter what you do, you cannot outrun his reach. And he is pursuing you. You cannot escape his all-knowing omniscience, his omnipresence. You cannot get outside of that. There's nowhere on this earth that his authority does not extend. He has the ability to reach you where you are. You cannot run from God. Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing me. And when we begin to turn in a direction that he's called us to, that, that's different than the direction that he's called us to, what does he do? He pursues us. And he seeks us out to save us literally from ourselves, from our disobedience. You say, what can I do? Pastor, what can I do if, if, if I've, I'm, just, I, I'm somewhere where I think is a long way from God? What can I do? The first thing that you need to do is stop justifying your own disobedience. Forget about the past. Forget about how somebody has hurt you. Don't try to justify what you're doing. Just acknowledge it before God. Recognize that God is pursuing you, that he loves you, that he wants to restore you to himself. And stop trying to run away from him and simply yield yourself to him. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you that in our first service this morning that Several people said, Pastor, that's, that's me. I'm, I'm running. I'm running from God. And I pray right now that if there's someone in this service that is running from you, I pray that today would be the, the day that they stop running. That today would be the day that they look around them and realize that God has put storms in their life for one reason. It's not to punish them. It is to restore them, to get their attention, to draw them back to himself. Father, we know, we know that, that Jonah knew that he was running from you. We know that he knew that the storm was sent by you. And Father, you did it to correct him, not to punish him. And Father, I pray for the person today that, that has really struggled feeling like God has it out for them, that God is punishing them. I pray that right now, Father, that you will speak to their heart and, and let them know that you are pursuing them to restore them, that you in that meme, you are the, you're the man that's bent over the ditch, grabbing onto the leg of that sheep to pull them out of that ditch. And no matter how many times we jump back into that ditch, you are there to restore us. You are there to pull us out. Before we go this morning, as we close in, in prayer, if you say, Pastor, that's, that's me. I'm, 
I just, there's a, there's a running. I, I've just, I've, I've been running from, from God, from what he has for me, from the direction that he has in my life. I just want to pray for you before we close. If that's you, would you slip your hand up so that I can pray for you as we close? Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God that pursues us. And I pray that today, that as we go about our day, that we would be reminded that you love us, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, that you send some storms at us because you desire to bring us back to yourself. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.